0: Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want.
1: Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's the 17th of March, 2023. You're with Give the People What They Want. That's Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Happy to be with you. Um, Interesting news from the world of um, the baseball world series. It's a real world series. It's a real world cup of baseball, not just what the United States calls the world series where it's just teams playing within the United States. Um, This is the real thing. Watched a few of the games. Don't ask me why. Not a big baseball fan, but still I put myself through it while we were in Havana, Cuba, watching the Cuban team triumph over many other teams and advance to the semifinals. They're going to play in Miami, Florida. That's interesting. And guess what, friends? Uh, At the time of recording, we're not sure whether the um, Cuban team playing in Miami, Florida might be playing either the United States. That's going to be interesting. USA versus Cuba in Miami, Florida. Um, That'll be interesting. The other matchup might be Cuba versus Venezuela in Miami, Florida. Either way, friends, surreal developments, Um, very surreal development, surreal development. Good God, what has happened in the world of finance? No surprise, really, in one respect, Silicon Valley Bank, big problems with that bank. Suddenly, a week ago, looked like the bank was going to implode and take down the international financial system. Now. It's one of the banks that you've never probably heard of. Silicon Valley Bank, really? Uh, When did that start operating? You know about, of course, Chase Manhattan. You know, of course, about the Bank of Scotland. These are names we know of. People don't carry around Silicon Valley Bank credit cards or have checks from that bank, largely because it wasn't set up to be a retail bank in the conventional sense. It was a bank For startup companies in California. Uh, That's why it's Silicon Valley Bank, a kind of regional bank in the United States. Set up to provide finances for startups, it was itself run very much like a startup company. Um, Gave enormous um, amount of liberties to its teams to go out there and provide financing for innovation. Interestingly, most countries in the world, particularly countries like China, for instance, a lot of financing for innovation comes from the government. Um, government financing plays a major role here. There's a lot of investment from the government. In fact, in the United States, until recently, the government was one of the major financiers of a lot of innovation and, in fact, continues to finance a lot of innovation um, through government financing to universities and so on and so forth. The internet, for instance, financed by the US government through the military uh, and other uh, venues as well. Silicon Valley Bank was created to provide financing for private startup companies that couldn't really um, get the kind of flexibility from regular banks. That was its purpose. It's got to be, it's important to understand that. Well, they made enormous loans Uh, Only about 2% of their holdings were insured by the U.S. federal government, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, But that by itself shouldn't have been a big uh, problem, given the fact that they were investing to people who were supposed to be real innovators. There were other rules that the Silicon Valley Bank had, which were odd, which had to do with holding requirements by people who had taken loans from them and so on. Let's not get into that. The real problem was that Silicon Valley Bank made a bet, which many companies made on long-term securities and the viability of long-term securities, meaning they bet, of course, that long-term securities um, would have interest rates that would be higher than the uh, short-term securities. And the reason is that in the long-term, securities... If you're going to invest in the long term, you want a higher rate of return in general. Um, the reason being you're taking a, a longer risk and so on. Well, there's been an inversion in the U.S. bond market yield curve where the um, short term interest rates, uh, in fact, are um, uh, flipped the script and became higher than the long term interest rates. Now, this yield inversion has taken place A few times in 1989, in modern period, there was a recession that followed it in 1990. The yield curve inverted in 2000, leading to the so-called dot-com explosion. Now, it's got to be said that there were lots of reasons for the dot-com explosion, but one of them was the inverse yield curve. The yield curve also inverted in 2006, playing a contributory factor toward the collapse of the U.S., a subprime mortgage market, which triggered the major credit crisis of 2007-2008. Well, boom, Silicon Valley Bank goes. They made a big bet on on interest rates and interest rates went up. The U.S. Federal Reserve jacked up interest rates. This was uh, going to be a problem in terms of whether SVB would be able to deliver um, on its own financial commitments it exploded so did signature another big bank innovation bank like this then it turned out that the major banks were also in trouble credit suisse for instance had a long uh, a pull on the interest rate market issue governments came in as they do and they provided a uh, you know underlying uh, relief for these 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 banks protected the banking system as it were uh, protected Not SVB, which most likely is already, in fact, filed for bankruptcy protection. Um, In fact, SVB Financial Group, the parent company, filed for bankruptcy protection on Friday the 17th in order to protect two of the branches of SVB Financial. And and that's the, the, um, the credit side of things which they were interested, the brokers and the technology investing business. Uh, SVB capital and SVB securities, in other words. But SVB is in bad shape. It's going to be allowed to go eventually. Um, but the banking system had to be saved. Interestingly, European Central Bank said interest rates are going to keep going up, regardless of what's happening in the banking sector. Swiss government said, we're going to underwrite um, you know, the, the Credit Suisse problem. But other banks are jittery, very, very jittery. jittery. This inverse yield curve, little bit like the El Nino phenomena, brings with it catastrophe in places where you don't expect catastrophe to come. Well, that's part of what we're worried about here at um, you know People's Dispatch and Globetrotter, looking at how to report to you complicated economic news. You're tuned out already. Well, tune back in because we're going to move quickly to the Iraq war, a difficult War, a war the United States prosecuted on that country 20 years ago. Zoe, tell us a little about what's happening 20 years after the US conducted its illegal war against the
0: Iraqi people. Well, as you said, it was a an extremely illegal war wherein over a million Iraqis died. These are you know estimates that have are have come out through different reports. The US, of course, does not have um, this official toll. Um, extremely destructive war. Of course, the impacts are still seen today in terms of people's health in Iraq, in the infrastructure, and so much of how the country runs today. Um, And this war that was, was, uh, you know, led against Iraq was based on completely fabricated lies um, by the U.S. government, um, and saw also many uh, U.S. soldiers die. Um, Many people who thought that they were going to defend a allegedly noble cause, unclear what that, uh, you know, finding these supposed uh, weapons of mass destruction. But all of that to say that 20 years after the Iraq war, it's interesting, the narrative is still one that this was, you know, by the uh, US security establishment, that this was a necessary war. And, you know, above all, kind of obscuring what happened. And it's really thanks to people like Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that we do know today, on one hand, the the civilian death toll, um, the atrocities committed against the Iraqi people. This is really thanks to uh, a WikiLeaks that has done so much to uncover a lot of secret documents from the United States about this war. And on this anniversary, you know, we'll, a lot of us will remember the massive anti-war demonstrations that took place across the entire world, in the United States, across Europe, in the global south, millions of people were on the streets to demand that this war not be prosecuted. I remember going to an anti-war protest with my family in Boston. Um, So many of us have this memory of the people saying, we do not support this war. And so on this momentous anniversary, which for many commemorates just an atrocious uh, imperialist intervention going against the will of the people of the world, um, once again, the anti-war movement is rebuilding itself and coming out to say no more to these endless wars, no more to um careless uh, loss of life in the name of <clears throat> you know US security establishment. And people are directly linking the anniversary of the 20 years of the invasion of Iraq to the ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, For many, as we've been reporting for the last year, this was a completely avoidable war that really was prosecuted by NATO. Um, And so on this anniversary, uh, people are going to be taking to the streets to say no to war. It's a very, very interesting mobilization that's going to be happening. as we've seen over the last year, especially in the area of media, this war has been has taken on many different narratives, many different discourses. Um, and a lot of people within the United States don't really understand how this happened, how this war happened and really what is the impact. And so tomorrow in Washington DC, over 200 organizations have come together to organize a rally against this war, to remember the 20 years of the Iraq war. Uh, it's going to be quite interesting There's already been a lot of, uh, this is a war that has huge amounts of support from the Democratic Party in the United States. There has been some uh, fractures within the Republican Party, for example, uh, that do not like the fact that billions have been sent uh, to this war in Ukraine. Maybe they think this could go to another war like the war against China that the U.S. is seeming more and more keen to wage. So it's going to be a very interesting day, I think, for those of us who have seen this this trajectory, the legacy of the imperialist wars in the beginning of the tw- uh, 20th century, um, seeing the resurgence of the anti-war movement is definitely something that will be interesting to follow. Um, of course, this is a war that's, that's challenging to explain. As you said, financial crisis, challenging to explain the war in Ukraine, many different layers. Um, but I think what people are, are trying to bring in this mobilization of linking it to the Iraq war is to try to make it more understandable. And above all, the fact that billions are being sent uh, to send weapons and to instigate, to stop negotiations. Uh, and within the United States, of course, you see that billions are going to bail out banks Um, Yet social movements and progressive organizations complain that things like student loan debt um, and other essential things for the survival of the people in the country are actually ignored. So it's going to be an interesting day. Uh, We'll be out there as People's Dispatch covering this, speaking to organizers, speaking to people about why they're mobilizing against the war.
1: Um, You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch, that Zoe Prashant on the street covering protests against war, covering bank failures. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Prashant, you know, the uh, war in Ukraine is continuing. The city that the Ukrainians call Bakhmut surrounded. um, Reports coming now that in Bakhmut, the Ukrainians are firing a number of their shells. There's apparently reports that they are facing a lack of armaments. Meanwhile, the Stockholm Institute just released a new report on weapons transfers around the world interesting material in that report not so much that surprising what did you feel when you read it uh, prashant
2: right uh supreme reports are pretty much a staple of this show at this point because i think every time you know we have a sipri report we come back and like you said these are patterns that seem to sort of uh continue over the years but nonetheless i think very important to highlight this report because uh it takes place during the years of the pandemic so it's from 2018 to 22 so i think the worst uh, you know, years of the pandemic are covered in uh, this report. And what it really says is basically that uh, in many parts of the world, there was actually a reduction in arms imports and even uh, in regions which are sort of notorious for exporting, for importing a huge amount, large amounts of arms such as West Asia, there has been actually a reduction uh, in many, uh, China has seen an increase, but it's a very minor one of 4%. And many others have seen substantial ones. Uh, on the other hand, the countries which have actually increased imports, incidentally, are countries which are very central to some of the uh, you know, major geopolitical issues happening. For so, instance, Japan has increased imports by 170%. You know, and South Korea and Australia are also two major uh, countries which have increased imports. And I think that really kind of shows uh, you know, where the military-industrial complex is really focusing on in anticipation of what... The United States and its allies want, you know, as we was just talking about how some sections prefer, do not prefer the war in Ukraine because they would rather want a war with China, for instance. And we have seen ever since Biden came to power, there's been an increased focus on militarizing uh, East Asia and the Pacific in general. We recently, just a few days ago, uh, there was the AUKUS countries, uh, you know, announced a deal for nuclear submarines for Australia which take effect in the late 2030s and the early 2040s so it's uh, the dates really struck me because uh, in 2023 these three countries the uk the australia and the us are talking about militarizing and nuclear militarizing the pacific in 2004 the 2040s so that's where we are right now but uh, in addition to imports also the other key number is really about the exports as well and uh, i think the us share in global arms exports as uh, usual continue to rise from 33 percent It's become 40 percent. France's uh, exports have continued to rise from 7 to 11 percent and the US and its major allies that's France, Germany, Italy, UK and Spain have contributed 65 percent to all global arms exports in this period of 2018 to 2022. So, so that really kind of puts into perspective uh, all, all these discussions, all these uh, narratives, all these all this rhetoric spun by countries in the west about how they're trying to establish peace, you know, how they want a rules-based international order and because so basically the foundation for this rules-based international order, the foundation for all these declarations of peace is this massive export of uh, weapons and like I said, it's important to remember that all this happened during uh, at least uh, two of these years were core years of the pandemic and countries were really struggling to provide, even countries of the global north, the countries which whose exports really sort of increased. Even these countries were struggling to provide their poor with amenities. These countries are struggling to provide, uh, you know, vaccines to many people. So kind of a depressing report in many senses about the state of the world today.
1: Well, Prashant, it's a depressing report, but also predictable. Um, You know, it's predictable that Russia, for instance, was exporting less because it's using a lot of its own military inside and so on. But by God, it's worth looking at that report from SIPRI, powerful stuff. Um, Zoe, let's move on, because I was struck, you know, just occasionally I was in, actually I was looking for more information on the SBB bank. I've been reading most of the business pages, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, um, you know, trying to get my head around exactly what was going on. And I came upon this headline from Bloomberg. I wanted to share it with you. Businesses, and it means U.S. businesses, Businesses urge Biden to use every tool in Mexico energy spat, to use every tool. What is going on with Mexico's attempt to have sovereignty over its energy? And what are these every tools that businesses are urging Biden to use?
0: Every tool. That's it's a it's a phrase that says a lot. Um, well, tomorrow there's going to be a massive mobilization in Mexico um, on the 85th anniversary of the uh, expropriation of, of uh, Mexico's oil resources. Um, this is a day that um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is commemorating in the midst of a moment where Mexico, under the Cuatro T, the fourth transformation, a project led by Andres Manuel and Morena is attempting to move forward with their energy sovereignty, is attempting to uh, create a situation where they don't have to depend on the global um, market to actually be able to, to be self-sufficient. That um, Mexico has great oil resources, it has lithium resources, um, it is a massive country which actually can sustain itself. Um, And so they've been moving forward with the nationalization of key strategic sectors um, to make them self-sufficient, to make them a hub in the region so other countries don't have to be dependent on, for example, the United States with extremely high prices. And in the midst of this, uh, they've of course faced, as you say, these. uh, I guess Biden wants uh, every tool in the box, the businesses are calling for this, Um, but really it's, it's a moment of great political shifts in Mexico. Um, it's a moment where the right wing is reorganizing, uh, where they're seeing these moves towards, uh, greater energy sovereignty and move towards, um, empowerment of the people. And they're actually mobilizing in great numbers. There have been a series of far right mobilizations that have been happening. So this, move to have this mobilization to show that the people of Mexico are supporting the energy reforms is actually quite key. Um, It's interesting also just to say that today is St. Patrick's Day, And uh, this is also a a fun fact about St. Patrick's day is that there was a St. Patrick's battalion um, of Irish fighters who refused to support the US's illegal invasion of Mexico Um, wherein they seized one third of Mexican territory, which is now part of uh, the territorial United States. Um, So on St. Patrick's Day, as the Mexican people tomorrow will take the streets to celebrate and support um, this push towards nationalization of energy resources to support energy sovereignty in a moment where the entire global system and its reliance on um, energy from uh, the West is actually putting, is making the cross of living crisis even worse. It's an important and interesting moment. Uh, Mexico moves forward with energy sovereignty, whereas the US would prefer that everyone is dependent on it uh, for this mediation um, and uh, really for these things. Um, Prashant,
1: you earlier talked about the rules-based international order. Seems to me against the rules-based international order to demand every tool we use to subordinate Mexico, um, TriContinental has just released a report about regionalism and sovereignty, which has an explanation of what this rules-based international order is all about. I have half a mind to send that report to Emmanuel Macron, who uh, apparently is pretty happy sidelining his own parliament in passing laws. I saw pictures, Prashant, lots of tear gas in um, in Paris. Uh, I don't know if Cypri calculates tear gas sales, but it might be worthwhile to see if there's a report out there on sales of tear gas and which countries are the principal importers of tear gas and users of it. What's happening in France? Why all this tear gas?
2: Why all this hot air from Macron? Right. Uh, incidentally, also, even as Macron has been uh, just recently went to Africa and tried to proclaim himself as a friend of the continent, friend of the countries there a new relationship. But... It's uh, clear what he's doing at home is anything but, you know, a friend of the workers at least, because uh, what the government has done is quite interesting. It's basically uh, subverted or bypassed parliament because it was not sure that its pension reform bill would get passed. Now, we talked about the pension bill reform before. You know, plans to increase the wage uh, retirement age from 60 to 64. You need to work at least 40 years to access pensions, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Extremely unpopular. Uh, move, I think, uh, over the past, you know, few weeks alone, 3.5 million people have come to the streets of France in hundreds of cities. It's interesting, I mean, it's 2023, and I think uh, one of the uh, things capitalism implicitly always promised us was the idea that as technology improved, humans would get more leisure time, you know, the idea that you would probably have to work less at some, someday, maybe because, and that's at least what they tell you, although we know that's not true, but, uh, you know, this is 2023, and we have French workers being told that okay, it's not you can't retire at 62; you need to work till 64. And you know, there's an economic crisis. There's not even money, there's not enough money. But I think uh, we have actually been writing. People's Dispatch has been extensively covering this from the angle of health workers, for instance, from the angle of uh, women workers. On March 7th and March 8th, there was a major strike uh, by uh, you know by the French workers on the occasion of uh, Women's Day as well. But from all, from any perspective, you take a look at this reform bill, there is widespread opposition because Workers, you know, they've received really brutal treatment over the past uh, many decades. There's been a massive withdrawal of the state. There's been austerity policies. Every sector has been starved in terms of resources, which means workers, you know, have been working overtime. And now you get this kind of a proposal. So it's absolutely unsurprising that there is such mass (coughs) opposition on the streets. And it's unsurprising that there is opposition in parliament as well. And, you know, when push comes to shove, Macron realizing that, he may not have the majority. And again, interestingly, the left is, of course, opposed to it. Sections of the right are opposed to it. Sections of the center-right, again, kind of wobbly at this point. so, Macron, who came to power without a proper majority, as in at least the government, the government came to power without a proper majority, really kind of staring at a crisis. And I think the trade unionists, the people on the ground, you know, those protesting on the ground, they've been very clear that this is not an end. We do know that this was already... Uh, uh, in 2000, before the pandemic as well, this was proposed, the workers pushed back, the government was forced to hold it. And I'm pretty sure that the protests are going to continue about this, clearly extreme level of unhappiness, but again, not very uncommon considering, especially what has been happening in Europe.
1: Well, it's going to happen um, in other countries as well, as the uh, public finances crisis becomes more and more acute in many countries, you know, um, these... Banking crises, the Credit Suisse crisis being one of them, if these start to escalate, we don't know. Uh, It is true that in the quest to uh, take care of inflation, the ECB, as I said earlier, European Central Bank, has decided, well, let's keep rising interest rates. That's going to create some money supply problems. You might see the fight against inflation creating its own problems. Um, I don't know how governments are going to pay for a lot of their obligations, particularly buying weapons and so on. Uh, We might see more of these pressures. But People's Dispatch, Globetrotter, we're on these stories. We've been on the story of the war in Ukraine going on now for well over a year. Um, As I said earlier, Bakhmut, the city uh, at the edge of the Donbass, a major flashpoint now. The fog of war has been such that it's been difficult and, in, in fact, impossible to report on the details of the war. You'll remember, one minute, it appeared as if the Ukrainians were making an amazing breakthrough. And, in fact, they did against the Russian lines, pushing Russian forces back. Now, suddenly, there are reports coming that the encirclement of Bakhmut, the loss of this city, is going to mean the loss of a great section of the Ukrainian military. This could be a decisive blow against Ukraine. Mr. Zelensky, president of Ukraine, made comments from his, um, his, his office in Kiev, where he talked about this being, in a way, a final stand. Um, this is really bewildering people in the West. New York Times reporting from talking to insiders in Europe and in the United States saying that the Ukrainians should not expend too much energy at Bakhmut. It's lost. They need to retreat in order for a so-called spring offensive. A lot of debates taking place about where the front line is and whether this war militarily will continue to go forward. That's only one part of the story. The other part of the story, of course, is the maneuvering, the political maneuvering taking place around um, around Ukraine, around Russia. On Monday, um, that is to say, on the 20th of March, um, uh, xi jinping of china will arrive in moscow he will be in moscow on the 20th 21st tuesday and will depart on the 22nd wednesday it has been said by the chinese foreign ministry confirmed in moscow by their foreign ministry that xi jinping and vladimir putin will meet to discuss their strategic understanding it is very likely that Mr. Xi Jinping is going to carry to Moscow the insistence that those 12-point peace plan, that document that China released a few weeks ago, um, is going to be taken quite seriously. Now, obviously, if the Russian military is on the verge of a historical, for their perspective, a victory in Bakhmut, it's unlikely that the Russians are going to stop the fighting now. Uh, nobody stops the fighting at the time when it looks like they might prevail in a conflict. Nobody does. On the other hand, perhaps, and again, this is speculation, perhaps um, Xi Jinping is going to lay down a pathway that, okay, let's say Russia prevails at something like Bakhmut. Draw the line there. Don't try to make a push towards Kiev. That is catastrophic. Already, the Polish government has sent planes to the Ukrainians. Uh, this is very important because Poland, after all, is a NATO member. It is not clear whether there'll be Polish pilots on those planes or Ukrainian pilots. If they are Polish pilots in a Polish plane and there's a dogfight over Ukraine and a Polish plane goes down, is this a Russian attack on a NATO country and so on and so forth? Nobody wants to test these red lines as it is the Russian jet that, uh, that destroyed a US drone, Um, That itself created jitters. People in the United States talking openly about hitting Russia hard for bringing down that drone. Dangerous waters. Xi Jinping in Moscow. Let's see what happens. It's hopeful. It's a hopeful sign that Mr. Xi has decided to go personally to Moscow at this time. Yes, Bakhmut might fall sometime this weekend, early next week. Yes, Xi Jinping will be in Moscow. then. By next Friday, let's see what we report. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, coming to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We'll be with you next week. Another important show. Thanks a lot.